Hello and welcome to the Disciple Making Podcast, where we're all about helping Christians become disciple makers. I'm your host, Brad Mann. So today we're picking up the fourth and final step on the disciple making pathway, multiplication. On our disciple making journey, multiplication is going to become our new goal. We're going to talk about it a lot, because successful disciple making must lead to multiplication. This is the goal and the standard that we must be aiming at. I want to take a moment and let that sink in. If multiplication is the new goal, what was the old goal? What has it meant for you to be a good Christian? Have you ever thought about it? Has your church ever told you that? What is the goal that you were supposed to be aiming at? See, sometimes we just don't know. And we, we do our best to be obedient to what we see the scriptures teaching us, either Sunday by Sunday as we go to church and we listen to the pastor, or day by day as we spend time with God ourselves. And that's good. We should be being led by the Lord each day. Absolutely. But as we suggested earlier in the podcast, disciple making is the key frame through which our calling is expressed. And the goal of disciple making is multiplication. It's not bums and seats. It's not attendance. Attendance is the measure that we often use in churches to measure our success. How well are we doing? Well, how many people are attending our services? That's not the measure that Jesus gives us. Sometimes we ask a better question. We say, how many people are involved in our small groups? They're they're plugged into community. That's a good question. It's a better question, but it's not yet kingdom. We ask another question. We say, how many people are serving in our ministries? Again, this is great. It's wonderful to have people serving in our ministries, but that's not enough to be the goal. Our goal is not to produce Christians that serve in ministries. Our goal is to make disciples who make disciples. That's what Jesus did, and that is what he calls us to. So let's explore this idea for a bit. Multiplication as Jesus' goal. What do we see if we take Jesus as the model? Well, let's let's have a look. Let's just consider a few things uh, briefly together as we as we listen. Let's start with Jesus and the twelve. In Luke chapter six, we see Jesus picks twelve guys out of a bunch of people that were apparently following him. He sets them apart, picks them out, and he actually goes into launching the sermon on the plain at that point. But Luke six, he singles out twelve amongst the multitude. In Luke nine. Jesus commissions the twelve. He sends them out. He gives them authority. He sends them on mission to go and and to begin to practice. This is part of the equipping that we spoke about over the last couple of weeks. Luke chapter 10, we see suddenly there's there's not just twelve. There's actually there's 72 others that somehow have been with Jesus. And we don't have a lot of description of these people. But Jesus, again, he commissions them and he sends them out. And we've got to ask ourselves this question. Would Jesus have sent out people that he hadn't discipled? Did he just like walk down the road, see 72 random people hanging out in the crowd and be like, hey, you guys, why don't you go off there and do some discipling? No. These are people that have been with Jesus, have been able to grow as he has taught them, as he has discipled them, as he has brought them to him as followers, right? gone through the winning, as he has built them up and taught them about the kingdom, as he went from place to place teaching about the kingdom. And as he's begun to equip them and give them ministry exposure, this is now what they're doing with the 72. And then when you get to Acts chapter 1, you suddenly see Jesus is gone, but there are 120 people that are gathered together and they're praying. So 
If we look at Jesus' life, I think we see Jesus modeling this idea of multiplication. By the time Jesus goes, shortly after he's left, there's 120 people that are waiting, ready to continue the ministry that he did. And of course we know after Pentecost that number explodes. So what if we look at some of the things that Jesus said, not just what Jesus did, what Jesus modeled. Let's, let's pick some of the commissions that Jesus gave. Let's take two out of the four different commissions. Let's start with the classic, Matthew 28, right? That's right down the disciple-making narrative. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, right? So Jesus clearly desires his people to make disciples. And he also said to teach them everything that I've commanded you. So just as they were to make disciples, they were to teach those disciples to make disciples. And so there's a call for disciples who make disciples. Let's go to John. I love this one in John. John 20, 21. Jesus says to his disciples, he says, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. God has given me a particular purpose to come into this world, to tell the world about the kingdom of God. To tell them that there is a way to access the kingdom of God by believing in me as the Messiah and repenting of their sins. And then to become a part of that kingdom. And so just as God sent me to inaugurate the kingdom and to make disciples, you here are my disciples, you are the fruits of my ministry. So now I send you to do the same. To teach and preach the kingdom and to make disciples. Some of the things... Jesus said in his commissions. What about Matthew chapter 9? Let's go there, verses 35 to 38. Uh, you might not know that off the bat, but you'll be familiar as we begin to read. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. You know, it's a normal day for Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out more workers into his harvest field. What expectation do we see Jesus putting on his disciples here? This is a teaching moment. He looks around, he sees the great need, and he turns to his disciples and he says, Guys, I want you to understand that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There's not enough disciple makers. So pray. You pray, not me. You pray and ask the Father to send out more workers into the field, to create more disciple-makers who will disciple the people who are out there. What about John 17, verse 20? This is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's this beautiful moment, this culmination of all the anticipation leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. And he prays to the Father. And in verse 20 of his prayer, he says this, and it's, it's incredibly beautiful because it opens this prayer up for all of us. And he says, because he's been praying for his disciples, he says in verse 20, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Jesus is assuming, as he makes this prayer, he is presuming that his disciples will make other disciples. That's his assumption. That they will by default be disciple makers. And his anticipation is that those also who believe in the words of his disciples will also make disciples. Inherent in that idea and that understanding. Multiplication was Jesus' goal. When Jesus did disciple making, when he was effective at doing win, build, equip, it led to multiply. It led to multiplication. Let's tease us out a little bit further. 
Let's take Peter as a case study. And there's a whole bunch of, of stories of Peter that we can just look at briefly and we can see how Peter develops. And this is going to be useful because we're going to see it's not perfect. It's not, it's not simple. It's not a straight line graph. But we're going to see how Jesus models disciple making and multiplication in Peter's life and what God ultimately does through Peter. So their first interaction is in John chapter 1, verses 41 and 42. And we actually see Simon's brother, Andrew, fetching Simon. And he takes him to Jesus. And Jesus looks at Simon and says, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas or Peter. And at this point, we don't see Peter doing or saying anything. But Jesus just has this moment with him. Matthew chapter 4. See, Jesus is walking next to the Sea of Galilee. And he sees Andrew and Simon there. He sends them this invitation. He says, guys, why don't you come and follow me? And I'll help you to fish for people rather than just for fish. And so at once we see they leave their nets and they follow him. There's this obedience that begins in Peter at this point. Mark chapter 1, we have this beautiful moment where Jesus is going with James and John and they go to Andrew and Peter's house. And when they get there, they discover that Peter and Andrew's mom is actually sick. And so Peter brings Jesus to his mom and Jesus heals his mom. And Peter just stands there. He's able to watch. He's able to see Jesus in action. He's able to recognize there's something about this man that's different. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. We get the story of, of Jesus and Peter and the, and the big catch of fish. Right? If you remember, Jesus demonstrates his supernatural power. He says, hey guys, why don't you cast your net on the other side of the boat? And so they respond in obedience. And then they catch this huge amount of fish. And so they come into shore and, and Peter falls down at Jesus' feet. And he says, Lord, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. You shouldn't be in my presence. And Jesus says, Peter, I want you to come and follow me. And I'm going to make you fish for men. I'm going to repurpose you. And Peter begin, and he responds in faith and obedience. This is a pivotal moment in Peter's life where his heart has been laid bare before the Lord. And Jesus has accepted him. He's welcomed him in. Let's jump ahead a little bit to Matthew chapter 16. There are other passages we could pick, but let's go here. Jesus says to his disciples, he says, Hey guys, who do people say that I am? And they, and they respond, you know, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist. And, and then he, and he throws this out. I think it's a bit of a test for them. Like, How well have you understood what I've been saying? So he says, and who do you think that I am? And Peter is the one who responds. He says, you are the Christ. You are the, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He has this response. There's a response that's built of faith. There's a response that's in the Spirit of Jesus and it's been revealed to him by his Father in heaven. There's this beautiful moment. Let's go 10 chapters later. Matthew 26. Jesus takes his disciples aside and warns them. He says, listen guys, what's going to happen is I'm about to be arrested and you guys are going to fall away as a result. In fact, this has even been prophesied in the Old Testament and this is what's going to happen. And Peter says, no, Lord, I'll never fall away, even if I have to die. And we all know Jesus takes us out and says, listen, Peter, unfortunately, before the cock crows tonight, you're going to have to die three times that you even know. And so you see that this journey with Peter, it's, it's not perfect. It's messy. There are these high moments, these points of great obedience, but there's also these places. There's the get behind me, Satan. There's this rejection and unwillingness to know that Jesus is right on the money. Let's go to the last one in the Gospels, John 21. This is my least favorite portion of Scripture because I really don't like fish. If you don't know that about me, no, you do. And uh, here we see Jesus and his disciples, they're having a fish fry. 
starts off Jesus on the shore, they're in the boat, they haven't caught anything again. And so again, there's this, there's this call. Jesus calls out to them and says, hey, throw your net out on the other side. And they don't yet know that it's Jesus. And yet when they do that, they, they catch all these fish. And of course, it shows the disciples that, that it's Jesus who's speaking to them. And so Peter gets, he's so excited, he, sw- he takes off his clothes, he swims out to shore. And Jesus and Peter have this conversation. And Jesus invites Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? And he asks him three times. And each time he responds with a call to care for God's people. And this, this brings about a hurt in Peter. And yet it's also a restoration because three times Peter denied Jesus. Now three times he's been able to affirm him. And finally Jesus says to Peter, you follow me. That's the call. And so that's how we see the journey of Jesus and Peter ending at the end of John's Gospel. What happens when we get into the book of Acts? How does Peter live out what Jesus instilled in him? Well, there's a lot we could say, but let's just pick three different scriptures. And really the first, the first scriptures, are, they follow one story from Acts 3 through to Acts 4. We see John and Peter, and they heal this man that's been born lame. He's never been able to walk. His legs are probably incredibly thin and weak. And yet they just they speak healing over him. And they're confident in their ability to minister to him. And then as a result of that, they stand up and they preach boldly to the crowd. And they declare Jesus. And as a result of their preaching, they get called in Acts chapter 4 before the authorities, the, the Pharisees, the religious authorities. And they get rebuked for teaching about Jesus. And they say, listen guys, we can't help but preach. We have to tell of what we've seen and heard. And so they continue to teach and preach with boldness. They continue to make disciples of others after Jesus is gone. The last scripture is in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10 we see Peter is used by the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel to the Gentile world. Up until this point, the message has really only been shared with the Jewish people. And in Acts chapter 10, Peter is used by the Lord to, to very clearly show how the gospel is meant for those Gentiles as well. And so we see, again, we see in Peter the work that Jesus did in him, the winning, the building, the equipping that Jesus did over time with Peter, gets lived out and Peter becomes a disciple maker. He lives multiplication. His life results in many coming to know the Lord. And I know Peter is somewhat of a unique example. We speak about him because we have a lot of information about him. But that's the desire that God has for all of us. The commission that he gave to us. That just as the Father sent him, so he sends us. If we're going to be disciple makers, we need to be aiming for multiplication. It's what we see Jesus doing. It's what we see him teaching. I want to jump from, from Jesus and the disciples. I want to jump quickly to Paul and Timothy. Because Paul says something to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. That's really significant. It's really helpful for us. It paints this picture really well. Paul says to Timothy, he says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. I want to ask you this question as we've read that scripture together. How many generations of disciples do you see in this passage? How many generations do you see? Because there are four. The things that you have heard me say, there's two. There's Paul, the original disciple maker. There's Timothy, his disciple. Then there's this call 
that Paul gives to Timothy. He says, I want you to entrust these things. So how I've discipled you, I want you to entrust that to reliable people. Okay, so Timothy, you also need to have disciples. But it's not just enough to have disciples, Paul says. You need to entrust them to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So your disciples, Timothy, must have disciples. Disciple making to the fourth generation. Multiplication to the fourth generation. When we talk multiplication, I want us to use this as a goal. Because if this is true, then we know that the disciples of the person we're discipling carry the same DNA. That they're also producing disciples who make disciples. And this is something we can often miss. It's a place we can often get stuck because it's not enough for a disciple maker just to have disciples. It wasn't good enough for Paul just to have Timothy. And this is the standard that we often look at, and that's the standard that we often call success. But that's not disciple making, that's just discipling. And it's good, but it's not enough. To be a disciple maker, it has to go further. Your disciples need to have disciples, and those disciples need to be making disciples. Only when we get here can we truly be sure that we're actually reproducing disciple makers. So let's talk very briefly in closing about what it means to live multiplication. If this kind of multiplication is really going to be our goal, what can and should we be doing as disciple makers to ensure that we bring this about? Let me share with you three ideas that I think are are helpful and are important in, in doing this. The first is this. We, as the original disciple makers, need to make sure that we model disciple making. We model multiplication. If we keep talking multiplication, but we only do addition, we're going to confuse those that we're discipling. And our message is going to lack integrity. Multiplication should happen when we do our winning, our building, and our equipping correctly. It means that we're training and imparting into our disciples so that they can do the works of ministry. It means that when we encounter disciples that we might normally add to a group of people that we're discipling, we instead look for opportunities to multiply. We ask ourselves this question, is one of our disciples ready to disciple this person instead of me? And if not, then we ask ourselves this follow-up question, are they ready to be equipped by doing the discipling of this person with me as I slowly release them to get more and more exposure, as I debrief them and advise them as we go along together? Can I do at least equipping with them if I can't release them to be disciple makers yet? If we're going to be good disciple makers, we've got to first model multiplication. It has to be the priority that we live in our lives. Otherwise, our message has no integrity. Secondly, we need to constantly encourage and coach our disciples to live outward-facing lives. In other words, we need to encourage them to be living lives that are aware and looking to impact others. And guys, we've got to be frustrating when we do this. There's got to be constant repetition. We've got to reestablish in the lives of our disciples neurological pathways that may not be there. So that we're drawing their attention to the people around them. Showing them where they have opportunities to love them. And demonstrate the love of Christ. Showing them where they have the opportunities to share the gospel of the kingdom. Encouraging them, equipping them, empowering them to be able to do that. Because disciple makers have to constantly be looking upwards. We've got to be alert to how we can be used as God's agents in the world around us. We've got to be mobilizing those that we're walking with in order to be able to be doing that as well. Finally, it's helpful to create 
peer accountability networks, right? That sounds very corporate. Really, the idea is we want disciple makers to be able to encourage and inspire one another. So if you create these networks where, where those that have reached this level of disciple making can join together, it, it does a couple of things. Firstly, it removes you as a bottleneck because there are only so many meetings you can have per week with someone. And so you're putting people together who are in a similar space and you're allowing peer-to-peer networking to replace you as the constant source of input. Secondly, by doing that, it allows your disciple makers who are experiencing similar challenges to learn from each other's experience, to grow as a result, to look back to the Lord instead of looking to their disciple maker for answers. It It encourages growth. Thirdly, it creates a space where disciple makers can be careful. And unfortunately, sometimes in the church, this is something that doesn't happen all that easily already. Because those who are doing well tend to get overlooked so that we can spend the time on those who are struggling. But actually, disciple makers need to be careful as well. And in a space of disciple makers together, where people are going through similar things, they are able to be mature enough to look after and to care for one another. So that's us for today, friends. That's our goal, to become the disciple makers that Jesus intends us to be. And I want to encourage you to pursue multiplication, to think multiplication, to challenge yourself, to evaluate yourself and say, am I really doing multiplication? Because I promise you your default is going to be addition. Your default is going to be addition. And you've got to think and constantly reinforce in yourself and say, how can I change that? How can I do multiplication instead of addition? As you do that, may God give you strength and his grace as you continue to follow him in obedience this week. And so until next week, God bless you. Ciao for now. Bye-bye.